Please join me for the prayer of illumination. Giving God your word, O Lord, is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. Inspire us through this reading and by your Holy Spirit and lead us to the treasure of your will for our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 6. Hear these words. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward but whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is sees in secret will reward you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's week three of the stewardship campaign, and it's probably the most delightful Saturday and Sunday in terms of weather in an easy six months. And I just want to say, in a heartfelt way, thanks for coming. I <laughs> also want to remind you that um, hopefully somebody gave you a commitment card that came in the door. Don't be afraid of it. It's not a horrible thing. Um, commitment cards uh, this year, the hope is that if you can read or write, and I'm not talking about you older adults, um, I'm talking about kiddos. Um, if you can read and write, if you're older than 10 years of age, We'd love for you to fill out a commitment card. Now granted, we recognize that probably the financial question, which is only one of like 10, um, will probably be zero for those who are you know, younger, um, maybe even for those who are older, right? I, I hope that you think about the commitment card in terms of how to take your next step as opposed to how to pay the church's bills, okay? Um, so we're hoping the stewardship uh, team has aggressively put a goal of 75% of our active members, including children uh, and youth, uh, will return a commitment card because it's really not about paying the church's bills. It's really about taking your next step. So my um, standard line for beginning stewardship sermons is that my dad said, uh, Peter, always be careful. When the preacher starts talking about stewardship, hold on to your wallet, because stewardship always means money. I'd like to hope that over the last two weeks, we begin making a shift in the conversation about stewardship. That stewardship is not just what we put in the plate, but rather it is how we steward our lives, our families, our jobs, our passion. I hope that as we talk about stewardship, especially over the last two weeks, that we've come to a realization that it's really more about your heart and your treasure 
than anything else. That if anything, as we read the Sermon on the Mount and pay attention to Matthew chapter 6, that what Jesus says is where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. Now, some of you want to argue with me about treasure, right? That definition of treasure is more than just a dollar sign. It's really about, you know, what, how you're wired. It's really about the gifts that God has given you. It's really about what lights your fire and makes passion in your life. That, that's really that treasure. And so as we think about um, uh, giving our treasure back to God, we kind of shift, we, we pivot a little bit. We're not just talking about what is our treasure and where is our heart, but now how do we go about giving that treasure back to God? Now, um, I really love this kind of phenomenon called something bigger. I love the idea of being a small piece of the pie in a much larger project that has a calling and purpose uh, to make the world a better place. This something bigger, maybe you've participated before, where you're just a tiny part of what's happening in the, in the bigger whole picture. And when you accomplish the goal all together, you know, confetti falls from the ceiling, party horns are blown, awards are given, there's a banquet, but nowhere inside is your name on the program because you are a small part in something bigger. Have you had that opportunity to have a small part in something bigger? I think you have. One of them is you participated in Chapelwood's Zoe group. Now, for those of you unaware, uh, 2014, it was during Lent, and uh, the worship planning team needed something, because, you know, Lent is about giving up something, uh, and then you take what you gave up, and the resources go to help someone who uh, is less fortunate. And so, some of you know this, but my brother-in-law, Gaston Warner, is in charge of Zoe Ministries. Zoe Ministries is an uh, orphan's ministry for folk in Africa, but they own no orphanages. They have no brick and mortar structures. What they do is they take orphans, pull them into a working group, which is 40 households, give them resources and support, and over the course of three years, they bring them up out of poverty by using basic practices around hygiene, farming, capitalism, prayer, and support. So in 2014 for Lent, we took a very passive offering each Sunday that would go towards our Zoe group, or towards a Zoe, towards Zoe. We had Gaston come out and do an adult gathering, and Gaston can sell air conditioners to Eskimos, and so we all loved it, and it was wonderful. And by the time Lent was over, we'd accumulated enough money, I think it was roughly $7,000, that we were able to support a Zoe group for the next three years. Our Zoe group was in Kenya. The program name for that particular group of orphans was the Biddy Group, Biddy Kenya. It's so after three years, we got a case study report. And the case study report was about one of the households in the 40. And that household, uh, the head of the household was Doreen. Doreen was 20 in 2014 that her father had died when she was six years old. Her family was left in a difficult position, which only became more worse or worse, became worse when their mother died just three years later. 
Doreen became the head of the household. She dropped out of school due to lack of resources and worked to earn money for the family to eat. One of the jobs she had was helping in a hair salon, but she was paid very little or not at all. Um, other times she worked in a neighbor's field, but again, she was paid little or not at all. You see, because there wasn't an adult to stand up and advocate for her, oftentimes she was um, exploited for her labor. The children in her house only ate one meal a day, if that, and oftentimes did not know how uh, to do proper hygiene. Um, They didn't often have any money to send the rest of the kids to school. After three years in the Zoe program, um, they, uh, so, uh, I gotta read one more thing to you, sorry. Part of Zoe is that when you come into the program, you're asked a set of questions called the dream questions. The dream questions are what makes you feel sad, what makes you happy, what happens in your community that you don't like, what's your dream for the future, and what are your guiding principles to achieve that dream? What Doreen, Doreen filled out in the beginning of the program was what makes you feel sad, the death of my father and mother. What makes you happy? The church. What happens in the community that you do not like? It says that it was kind of illegible what she wrote there. What is your dream for the future? To have a hair salon. What will be your guiding principles to achieve your dream? A 20-year-old, subsistence living, one meal a day, one hut for her five members of her family to live in. The guiding principles to achieve her dream were prayer, saving money with others, hand washing, and using my time responsibly. After three years, um, her family was able to generate some income because she started working at a salon. Eventually, she opened up her own hair salon. The income that came from the hair salon sent all of her siblings to school and made the, able for them to rent a plot of land. Uh, most folk in this Kenyan community have a plot of land that they uh, farm. They call it their kitchen garden because it goes into what they eat uh, on a daily basis. Um, uh, the family had been split apart because there was a 16-year-old brother, and in their culture, when you get to be a certain age, um, boys are not allowed to sleep in the same uh, bedroom as uh, the girls or the sisters are, Uh, and if you only have a one-room hut, then that means he had to go someplace else. Um, With the income from the salon, they were able to build an extra room onto the hut, and now the brother could come back and live with the family. Um, This is a picture of Doreen with her five goats. Um, Goats are kind of like in Kenya. uh, For us, the Financial Peace University, how many of y'all taken that, right? You have your um, emergency fund, right, which you're not supposed to touch. Yeah, (laughs) goats are the emergency fund in Kenya, right? Because, like, you can drink the milk, you can, uh, uh, if things go really bad, you can sell it and pay off whatever the debt is. Um, Or if you get to a celebration, you can eat it. Um, So there you go, goat barbecue something bigger. You participated in that. You probably put $5 or $10 in. That it's a powerful thing to think that there are 40 households just like Doreen's that were lifted up out of poverty because of our prayer, our intention, and our cash. It's a powerful thing. 
I think when you start thinking about something bigger, when you think about giving back your treasure to God, it has a lot to do with knowing your why. Now, many of you have heard Simon Sinek's The Power of Why. I'm not about to play the video again because I think you know, everybody on uh, the face of the earth has heard it at least once. But I think there's an interesting twist to The Power of Why, and that's knowing your why. Uh, Michael Jr., he's a, a, com- a Christian comedian. Uh, he, uh, in the middle of his comedy sets, he will stop, pass a wireless microphone out into the audience and ask questions, not to make fun of them, but to learn about them. And so uh, Michael Jr., I think, wandered on top of a fascinating idea of knowing your why. And I'd love to, play, it's about three minutes. I'd love to play this uh, clip here. Um, for you and I together to enjoy. How do I know? A lot of people, when they think of the phrase, how do I know, they always want to put the what behind it. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? The the question that you really should ask is, how do I know why I'm here? Because when you know your why, your what becomes more clear and more impactful. If you know, like for instance, um, people know that I do comedy, but that's what I do. My why is to inspire people to walk in purpose. So I can do comedy, I can write books, I can be in a movie, because all of it is motivated by my why. So we're in Winston-Salem, I'm gonna show you a clip from Winston-Salem. And I'm just talking to this guy in the audience and he tells me that he's a, uh, a musical instructor at a school. So I was like, all right, you're a musical instructor, you know, can you sing? Let me hear you sing a song. So this is what happened at the last episode of Michael Jr.'s Break Time, check it. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right. So um, let me get a couple. Let me get a couple bars of like uh, "Amazing Grace." Can you do the first part of that? Let me, go ahead. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That brought us in. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Um, now, once you give me the version, is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing. Here's what I want you to catch. 
The first time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time, he knew why he was doing it. When you know your why, your what becomes more impactful because you're walking towards or in your purpose. Did you hear that? When you know your why, your what becomes more impactful because you're walking in or towards your purpose. I mean, just, you know, it's not an interesting thing to ask the guy who teaches music uh, to a high school to sing a few bars of Amazing Grace. I hope the man can sing. And he sang well. But then when asked to sing it, kind of finding that redemption piece, finding that uh, recognition that that amazing grace had made a difference in his life, you began to see something totally different, his why. And I think what I, so, so it'd be great, right, if we not only did our what, but our why, so that our impact was more so. But the part I want you to pay attention to is, did you see what the crowd did around him as he sang the why moment? People standing up, clapping. And I know I don't, I like to be somebody who doesn't see race, but did you see the overweight white guy who runs over and hugs him at the end? And clearly somebody had an experience in the midst of that impactful what? I think when we pay attention to how Jesus gives, we get a completely different answer than a static commitment card and $5 in the plate. I think when we pay attention to the way that Jesus gives, we, we realize that Jesus gives anonymously, right? Um, Matthew 6 says a lot about not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So, so Jesus gives, uh, one of the stories I love about Jesus giving is he goes to the water well at noon. And he runs into the woman at the well, right? And you remember the story. We've heard it often before. I've preached on it before, right? That the woman at the well at noon, nobody goes to the well at noon. Why? Because in ancient Near Eastern culture, um, you go with a group and you go in the morning or in the evening because the cool of the morning and the cool of the evening. You also go with others because to move the stone off of the well and to dip out your own water is an exhausting experience. And so you go with a group. You don't go alone at noon. But Jesus shows up at noon and finds the woman at the well and realizes real clearly why she's there alone. It's because she hasn't lived a perfect life and that she's prepared for Jesus to shame her for her past and her history. But while they're at the well, Jesus talks to her. They have a great conversation about worship and about what God calls out of us. And I believe it helps her take her next step. You see, when Jesus gives, it's not about um, just the what, but it's the why as well. And Jesus not only gives anonymously, but I believe that Jesus gives sacrificially. Now, of course, I could go to the conversation around the crucifixion and the resurrection, but um, let's, let's keep it within human bounds, right? So Jesus gives sacrificially. There's something that goes out from him. I love the story of the woman with the issue of blood. You remember she is uh, there on the side, Uh, Jesus is walking by, she reaches out and touches the hem of his cloak. Jesus stops and says, who touched my cloak? Not as a, "Mm -hmm," 
but rather he knew that power had gone out of him. He knew that somebody had been healed. I like to think that in that moment, if Jesus thought of his ability to heal as a battery, that his battery went down 10% and he wanted to know who, who, who reached out, who needed to be healed, who got the benefit of that moment, that sacrificial moment. And the woman with the issue of the blood, she says, it was me. I think when Jesus gives, Jesus gives anonymously and Jesus gives sacrificially. And I believe those are wonderful places for us to focus our giving as well. Now, I need to say that um, you don't have to be a statistician or an accountant to figure out that across the American Western church that giving has gone down, the number of givers have gone down. I'm not talking about just Chapelwood, I'm talking about the whole uh, Western America, the American church, I guess that is Western. Um, and um, the total number of dollars given has gone down. And I don't really know if that's just because the church doesn't have credibility, or I don't really know whether that's because, you know, the internet's eaten our lunch or, or, or what. I think it's more likely that folk, we've, we know our what, but we've forgotten our why. And that we've been scared off to make sure that everything we do is so anonymous that when everything's anonymous, we have no idea what anyone's doing. And that we've lost the idea of sacrificial and we've replaced it for the word out of duty. And, and so our what becomes sitting um, in a sanctuary for an hour um, and our why is lost beyond that. I believe Jesus has words to help us understand how to get back to giving. Now, I think this is an interesting uh, piece of the Sermon on the Mount, and I actually think this is less helpful uh, than we think. Uh, whenever you give to the poor, don't blow your trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may get praise from people. I assure you that that's the only reward they'll get. I don't think our problem in the church these days is trumpeting our gifts, right? I really don't get that idea here at Chapelwood. It's not, a, it's not like I got somebody saying, I'd give you half a million dollars if you'll name the sanctuary after my family, right? I mean, that, that's not the problem that we seem to be having. In fact, I really see some beautiful anonymity in the gifts that come. Um, you know, for the uh, two years ago uh, and 10 years before that, we had a $50,000 gift every day, uh, every day, huh, uh, every year from an annuity given by a family who'd been part of the church. And when I ask around about that family, um, it's not that they were overly showy. It's not that they were, you know, it's not like they blew trumpets when they came in the door, right? They're just good, faithful people who uh, included the church in their will. Um, just this last month, um, we, we got a gift from a church member of $75,000 for a designated purpose for raising a generation in faith. $75,000 anonymous, right? I don't think this is our challenge, but I do think we have other challenges to work on. I think it's important to talk about this is not a performance. I, I know there's a lot of importance around confidentiality and giving, but I, you know, knowing that it's not a performance is important. Um, performers perform a part and a role that's disconnected from their real bodies. When they get done performing, they go home and they assume their real uh, personality. You know, I think what we do in church should never be a performance. And I don't think that the audience that we might be performing for is the people in the pews or the people uh, on the chancel area. I think worship is always directed towards God. And so not performing could be a powerful part of authenticity for us. 
Jesus begins his warning about giving with the phrase, be careful. And I don't know about you, but when I read uh, the words, be careful out of Jesus's mouth, it's really hard for me not to think, be careful, Peter. Be careful, Peter. If you don't do this right, you'll go not to heaven. Right? That's how I hear it. Do you hear it that way? I feel like God is often the judge. And if be careful comes out of his mouth, it's like this. But notice in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says about be careful isn't that you're going to lose your spot in heaven, but that it's possible that your heart might be hurt. You see, be careful when you give your gift, right? Give it in secret. Give it so that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Give it to God, not because of anyone else. Be careful. Why? Because when we give a gift and think that the, the benefit is that everybody sees how wonderful we are, then we've just become a performance. And we get hooked into paying attention to everyone else's response. And we forget that the best response is from God. And so be careful is about don't let your heart be hurt. Don't you think that's what Jesus has always been about? I mean, we always worry that Jesus is about uh, getting our money or about getting our time off or about getting our lives, and, and we don't have time for that. But really what Jesus is primarily interested in is our heart and its health and wholeness. When Jesus says, be careful, it's not because I want you to do something that you don't want to do. It's be careful. I don't want your heart to be hurt. I mean, it's the same words that we say to our children, be careful, not because we want them to do this or that, but because we know the dangers that are out there. Don't get hurt. Be careful. And so when we think some more about how to give our treasure back, I think the best way to decide what goes on your commitment card is to spend time with God. <laughs> That's the person that'll be paying attention. And we've been saying for the last two or three weeks now that one of those crucial keystone habits for a disciple is to have a prayer life and to embed everything in scripture. So spending time with God is a great idea. I mean, Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, go in, into secret and give or pray to your father who's also in secret. So, so busy people go find someplace alone with no other people, sit still, do nothing, and listen to God. And some of you are like, I don't do that. Okay, if, if having time alone does not allow you to hear God's voice, here's a great one. Matthew 28 talks about uh, when, you, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to who? To Jesus, right? And so there's this connecting together in that parable that Jesus and the experience of the poor are similar. And so maybe if you can't get still and sit alone, which dude, if you thought I could, that's funny. I got a bridge to sell you, right? So when I need to hear God's voice, I go spend time helping other people, people who are hungry, sick, imprisoned, people who have less, people who suffer. And so regular trips to the food basket or Brazosport Cares or, um, oh, I did it again, the, gr the people who build, build, build homes. <laughs> Habitat, thank you. I, this happened in the early service. I, I also can't remember the first... Uh, uh, first phrase after um, our father in the Lord's Prayer, but shh, we won't do that today. To be able to 
put sweat equity into feeding others, building homes for others, making a difference in others' lives. You see, when we spend time with those who are less fortunate than we are, we begin to hear what God has to say about what we should do with our time, our talent, and our treasure. When we spend time with God, we get a better perspective on who we are. And I think at the end of the day, how do we respond to God? And, And it's really not about the duty, right? I mean, I think the church probably uh, for the last 20 years has functioned off of duty, right? The what that you have is to sit in a pew for an hour. The why is somewhere lost, right? But, but to respond to God, we have to know, um, you know, both of them. We have to know our what and our why. Um, we have to be willing to trust that Jesus is interested in the health and wholeness of our heart. And so therefore, how we respond to God has to be within that what and that why. And I believe a church that's doing what it's supposed to be doing will be teaching people how to pray, how to embed their lives in scripture, how to understand their what, and how to be set on fire by their why. Then everything else disappears, right? We don't have to uh, discuss or, or wonder or worry about cash flow. Instead, we're doing our what and our why, and life is coming together as God calls us to take our next step. I also want to say that I think as, um, as giving and givers have gotten scarcer and scarcer, that uh, all across the American church, not just Josh and I, that pastors have become far more polite. We, we don't challenge anymore. We don't step on toes. We don't pull for accountability because, you know, we're just happy you showed up and we're really worried that you might decide because we said something controversial that you might not give next time. And so we've become polite. We've become nice. And I think in return, to return the favor, you also have become wonderfully polite to your pastors. You're you're wonderful. We love you. This is really about the whole church, not just y'all, right? but you become polite. And so you don't challenge us. You don't ask for accountability. And so together we keep going along, scarce resources between us, hoping that we'll make it to the next chapter. But I think it's fair to say, much like the music director being asked to sing a few bars of Amazing Grace, that when we plug into our what and our why, Grace becomes amazing. And when it becomes amazing, we then know so much more clearly about how to give. Not just of our wallets, like my dad always says, be careful when a pastor talks about stewardship, really means he's talking about money. But rather we realize that there's something beautiful in anonymous gifts of being part of something bigger. And we realize that The best kind of giving is sacrificial giving. Not that you have to drain your bank account and ruin your retirement and jeopardize the future of your family or your mortgage, no. But just find that place where what and why meet in such a way that it doesn't damage your heart because Jesus is always interested in your heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.